Okay, so we are continuing in our series in the book of Revelation this morning. If you are new to the church, uh, we have been working through this book in the Bible for a good part of the year now. We're up to chapter 13 this morning. But we do have study sheets available for each message. So if you've missed a whole lot, the messages are online. There's study sheets. You can get them this morning. Uh, and you can get those online as well if you want to uh, bring yourself up to speed. Uh, but this morning, if you've got a Bible, pull it out. Uh, Revelation chapter 13. And uh, this really is one of the most controversial chapters in the book of Revelation. There's lots of interesting and exciting stuff in here to get our teeth sunk into. So uh, we'll talk about this. Let's read the chapter together. Revelation chapter 13. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns. And on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he'd given authority to the beast. And they also also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to make war against God's people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All those whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of everyone. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. It was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast, or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let those who have insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the name of a man. That number is 666. Here we are, here we are. Well, we have arrived. We have arrived at the most controversial chapter. In Revelation, man, oh man, I mean, some of the most mysterious, some of the most popularized, some of the most sensationalized stuff in the whole book is right here, isn't it? In chapter 13, we've got it all here. We've got the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth 
and the infamous mark of the beast is here. And of course, the mysterious number, 666. The number nobody wants to have as a pin number or as credit card number or the last few digits of your phone number. We all try desperately, don't we, to avoid 666, but none of us know why. It's just we think we should because it's here. So, you know, it's very difficult, isn't it, to, to work through this. And there's so many theories and so many um, speculations about it. Um, Alan McGregor gave me a little while ago a newspaper that somebody had dropped in his letterbox. Uh, I don't think he was endorsing it by giving it to me, but it's called The Times. Uh, on closer inspection, the full title is The South Pacific Signs of the Times. So you know where this is going. And the whole thing is full of articles that try to link up biblical prophecy, particularly Daniel and Revelation, with current events. So we've got Barack Obama here on the front cover. He's always caught up in the end times theories, isn't he? He's a major player. Um, Gaddafi's there as well. And on the back is this interesting article called New World Order Predicted. Uh, God displays his love to us by revealing through Bible prophecy how to prepare for what is soon to come upon this world. And they talk a lot here about Revelation 13, about this chapter that we're looking at today. And here is what they say about these two beasts, the beast of the earth and the beast of the sea. And I quote, The first beast which received the wound started healing and which all the world wondered after is the papacy. That's the office of the Pope. So apparently the Pope is the first beast. Uh, the second beast, which had two horns like a lamb, came up about 1798 in a sparsely populated area. I didn't hear that in the text, but apparently that's there. Uh, and then spoke as a dragon is the United States of America. Well, and what about 666? Here it is. I quote, the number 666 is the Latin numerical equivalent of a title the Pope takes, vicarious fillet day. Other names may add up to 666, but only Catholicism fits every clue. So apparently John wrote Revelation to attack the Roman Catholic Church. Who knew? Who knew, considering there was no Roman Catholic Church in John's day? But apparently that's how it worked. Now, that's just bizarre, isn't it? I mean, that is, and, and to be fair, that is on the more wacky end of theories that are out there. So there's all kinds, there's a whole spectrum, there's a whole continuum. But I mention that to you because that is an example of what starts to happen when you stop asking the question, what did this mean to its original audience? It's exactly what happens. When you stop grounding yourself in what this document would have meant, first principle of biblical interpretation, what this document would have meant to the first hearers and readers of it, you are in danger. You're in danger of spinning off into all kinds of correlations and connections between events in recent and modern history, which may in themselves seem plausible, but have no grounding and anchorage in the world out of which revelation comes. So be careful. Be careful how much you buy into this kind of stuff and how much you support these kinds of views. What we need to do and what I will try to do simply and humbly this morning is start by asking what would all this have meant to John? What would all this have meant to the people that he was writing to in these churches of the Mediterranean in the first century? Then work from there to contemporary application. I mean, we do it every week, but I feel like I've got to say it up front so you know where we're going this morning. Does that sound all right? Okay. So the chapter opens with the dragon, and we saw the dragon last week in Revelation 12, uh, who is clearly Satan. That one's not difficult at all. The dragon is Satan. Satan has been hurled to the ground. He's lost his place in heaven, and now he's gone off to make war against the people of God, represented by a woman, the people of God. 
And we see at the beginning of chapter 13, the dragon is standing on the, sh- on the shore of the sea. He's gone off to make war against God's people, and he's going to call for reinforcements. He's going to call for reinforcements from the sea and from the land. And the first reinforcement he calls up is this beast of the sea, this ugly, beasty monster out of the sea. It has ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns. Those numbers are very similar, aren't they, to the numbers that the dragon himself had in terms of the horns and crowns, these numbers of seven and ten. It's no coincidence. The numbers seven and ten represent, you remember, totality and fullness and completion in Revelation, not necessarily in a good way, but fullness or totality. Satan had these uh, sevens and tens associated with him because he has the fullness or the totality of evil. And now this beast of the sea receives from Satan the fullness of his power, the fullness of his authority. That's why he has the sevens and tens, because the beast of the sea has this total power exercised on behalf of Satan himself. He is, in a sense, Satan's agent to exercise Satan's control and dominion over the earth. So the beast has this pervasive authority. It was given authority over every tribe, people, language, nation, this expansive domain that the beast of the sea has. All inhabitants of the earth will worship this beast. It's very, very likely that when John and his readers heard about this beast of the sea, they would have associated it with the empire of Rome. They would naturally have connected this beast that comes out of the sea and exercises total authority over the known world with the empire of Rome that they were living under. If you were living in one of these cities, especially a port city like Ephesus, the Roman empire would literally have come out of the sea. The Roman ships that landed on the Turkish coast port cities like Ephesus, and then expanded the empire westward, taking people after people, tribe after tribe, nation after nation, as the borders of the Roman Empire expanded through the first century BC, first century AD. Until we get to the point in John's day, by the time Revelation's written, the borders of the Roman Empire really represent the borders of civilization. So that they would consider people outside the empire to be basically barbarians uncivilized mongrels outside of the empire. Rome was the world. Rome was civilization. That's what it represented. It had this this kind of expansive control. And as the empire of Rome expanded, as it subjugated these various people groups, it didn't just assimilate nations into a political empire. It assimilated them into a story. Because Rome knew that if you want to have social cohesion, you need to create a unifying story. You need to create a unifying narrative. And it did this. The story was called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. And in its bare bones details, it went like this. Rome, and especially Caesar Augustus, the first emperor, has unified the empire. He has unified these diverse people groups. He has brought stability. He's ushered in a new age of economic prosperity, of well-being, of peace and justice and blessing for the world. He has done this in such a miraculous way that now the emperors should be deified as gods. Now we should turn around as inhabitants of the Roman Empire and worship Caesar as if he was a god. We should venerate him, we should give him homage, and we should participate in various civic ceremonies that call him Lord and God because this this is nothing less than the act of a god to create this kind of empire. This is the story. This was the dominant cultural story that you lived by and lived within. If you were an inhabitant of the Roman Empire in the first century, it was just the air you breathed. So John comes along here, and in this vision he receives, there is an entirely new picture created. 
of what the empire is and what the empire is about. It is a beast that has come out of the sea and it has these blasphemous names that it is given to utter. One of the ways you can see these blasphemous names is to look at coins from the first century. The coins were minted by emperors. They actually distributed coins that were based on their own prestige and names they gave themselves. So here's one. This is a coin from AD 67-68, minted by Emperor Nero. So it's about 20, 30 years before John's writing Revelation. On the left, you see the head of Nero, Emperor Nero. And then on the right, a figure of Nero sitting on a throne, pouring out a container of something. And underneath, the Latin word salus, which in English is salvation. What you have here is a picture of Emperor Nero literally pouring out salvation for the earth. That's how he's being depicted. He is the one who pours out salvation, not just a good military leader, not just a head of state, the bearer of salvation itself. Is it any wonder that John talks about this beast of the sea as being given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemous names? It's exactly what's going on. These names, these names that you and I are familiar with giving to God in homage and worship, they're all names that were given to emperors in the first century. Lord, God, Son of God, the bringer of peace on earth, the bearer of salvation, the bearer of the gospel. All of those are titles that you can find on coins and inscriptions that were attributed to the emperors of the first century. That's the kind of worship that's happening. That's the kind of esteem these guys were held in. That's where you get these coins. And that's why John is saying this is beastly. This is so counter the vision of life ordered around God. This is nothing less than blasphemy. It's a beast that has come out of the sea and we need to name it as such. In fact, John goes so far as to say, that the beast is basically satanic, that this power that Rome has and the self-glorifying tendency that Rome has is animated by Satan and is nothing less than satanic. When it gets to the point of robbing the glory that is due God, this is satanic. This is demonic. It's a beastly power. Now, look at this bit here in verse 3 about one of the heads of the beast Seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. What's all this about? Well, it probably is a reference to Emperor Nero, same guy who was on the coins. A year after he minted those coins, he committed suicide by stabbing himself in the throat. And it seemed for a while after Nero died that the empire was over. Power was split between several people and it looked like the great glory of Rome might finally crumble. But then you have the rise of Emperor Vespian and the Flavian dynasty, and all of a sudden the empire rises again, phoenix-like, from the ashes. And people wondered and marveled at the power of an empire that can be struck and receive a fatal wound, such as the suicide of an emperor would represent, and yet rise again to new life, new power, new strength, and new glory. This is what John's depicting here, and it just led all the more to the worship of the emperor. Can this empire not be defeated by anybody? Will its glory never end? Will its, will its final day never come? All of the inhabitants of the earth are led to worship the beast. Who can possibly make war against this beast? Nobody. Nobody could challenge the military power of Rome. Who was like this beast, said the people? Who had the glory and the grandeur of Rome and the Roman emperors? So this beast of the sea very likely represents, for John and for his audience, the beast of the Roman Empire of their day, of the late first century. Now, if the, if the Roman Empire represents the beast of the sea, then what about this beast of the earth? 
who surfaces in verse 11. Then John sees another beast, and he's coming out of the earth. He's arising from the ground. Look at the main role of this beast. Look at the main role of the beast of the earth. It's to exercise the authority of the first beast. Verse 12, it exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf, and it made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. So basically, this beast of the earth is the publicity agent of the beast of the sea. The second beast is the PR manager for the the first beast. Do you know what I mean? The, The role of the second beast is not to try and bring glory to itself, per se, but to try and promote the worship of this first beast of the sea and send all of the veneration, all of the glory that way. So it's natural to conclude, and most commentators do, that this beast of the earth represents the cult of emperor worship that sprung up in the first century. The system of emperor worship that that caused and in some ways forced people to worship the glory and the emperors of Rome. It's fitting that this beast comes out of the earth because in a lot of ways emperor worship in the first century wasn't imposed wasn't imposed from on high it wasn't legislated it was simply it sprung up from these cities so thick was the propaganda that people inhabitants of these cities would apply for permission to, to construct a temple in honor of a particular caesar pergamum and ephesus did this they, they 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 constructed provincial temples which were purely dedicated to the worship of particular caesars the worship of rome the worship of the goddess roma the worship of the emperor's family and they would hire priests these temples, paid staff members whose roles it was to facilitate and to cultivate this worship on behalf of the citizens of the city. They would run all kinds of social festivals and civic events. The emperor processions and festivals were a classic where songs would be sung to Caesar as to a god, where sacrifices would be made to Caesar as to a god, and the emperor would be given this divine status in the eyes of all the inhabitants of the city. So this beast of the earth is the local expression in these cities of Asia, the province of Asia, of the worship and the cult of the emperor in the first century. One of the things these priests did is that they would set up images of Caesar. They would set up statues of the various Caesars around the city, in the marketplace, in the public square, in the baths, in the gymnasium. And these would be icons that would embody and represent the power of the emperor. It's probably the image that John talks about here, that this beast of the earth set up an image of the first beast and ordered people to worship it. These were the statues of Caesar that were so visible. You just couldn't take a few steps within this context without coming across some icon or visible representation of the emperor. And in some ways, this cult of emperor worship uh, breathed life into these statues, not by making them come alive, but by really convincing people that Caesar, the worship of Caesar was for your good. And the worship of Caesar would bring prosperity. And the worship of Caesar was so called for and so appropriate given what Caesar has done for us. This was the propaganda. This was the spin. This was the way that that, that, that machine of emperor worship had of animating these statues, giving life to them so that people really believed that by offering a pinch of incense to Caesar or sacrificing an animal in honor of Caesar would really return well-being and blessing in their lives. So the beast of the sea probably represents the Roman Empire. The beast of the earth probably represents the particular cult of emperor worship and its various expressions that lead people to worship 
Rome, worship Caesar, worship the emperor. Now, what about then this mysterious mark of the beast, this mark of the beast that people are forced to get, all people, so that they can't buy or sell unless they have the mark? Well, there's been all kinds of theories, haven't there, as to what this mark is. Is it a barcode? Is it some kind of computer chip, maybe, that's implanted in your hands? See, these are the kinds of theories, again, that sound plausible when you take Revelation out of its context, but when you start by placing Revelation in its context, those theories end up sounding a bit fanciful. This mark of the beast within the social world that Revelation came out of is almost certainly not a literal mark that somebody had on their forehead uh, forehead or their hand. It's not a literal mark any more than a few verses later in chapter 14. You see the, the people of God, the followers of the Lamb, they have the name of the Lamb and the Father written on their foreheads. Now, does anybody suppose that Christians are going to walk around with the name Jesus and God inscribed on their foreheads? No. Why then do we assume the mark of the beast has to be taken literally? I don't think it does. I don't think we're talking about a literal insignia here of any kind. The mark of the beast is simply a symbol of allegiance. It's a symbol of a person's loyalty to the emperor and the empire of Rome. It is a person whose life is marked by the empire, who is marked in allegiance and is orientating their whole life around the emperor, around Rome, and against the story of the Pax Romana. That's what it means to have the mark of the beast. And this, the story of the Pax Romana and the worship of the emperor was so pervasive that it really would be difficult to function in society if you didn't have that kind of allegiance, if you didn't have that kind of loyalty, which is exactly why John says anyone who doesn't have the mark, they can't buy and sell. If you're a Christian in the first century and you decide that your family is going to stay inside while the other families on your street are going outside and sacrificing animals to the emperor as the procession passes by, it's going to be tough for you. You're going to be socially ostracized, possibly by your own family, certainly by your broader social circle. If you decide as a silversmith living in Pergamum that you're not going to join a trade guild or a trade association because at their meetings they burn incense to the emperor and invoke the name of a patron deity of the Roman gods, it's going to be tough for you economically. You're going to lose trade contacts. You're potentially going to lose business. If you refuse to participate in the cult of emperor worship in these ways, it's going to hurt you financially. It's going to hurt you economically. It's going to hurt you socially. Even the money that's being used for trade and commerce, if it's got pictures of the emperor, which it did, and Domitian's son being deified as a god, if you refuse to engage in these kinds of practices, man, you are going to pay. You're going to pay a real cost. It wasn't easy being a Christian wasn't easy to remove yourself from these practices. If you weren't marked by allegiance to the empire and you weren't willing to participate in the cult to some degree, it was going to come at a price. It was going to come at an economic price and a social price and a financial price for you and your family. Sometimes that might have been state persecution, as it was with John. He's exiled on Patmos for subversion. Other times it may have just been social ostracization. It may have been losing business. It may have been being unable to be part of a trade guild in these more minor forms of persecution, but either way, it wasn't going to be easy. There was an expectation that you would be marked in some way by loyalty to Rome, receive that mark of the beast on your life. And Christians found it hard to stand against that. Okay. Finally then, the number 666. What on earth is this? Well, again, there's been all kinds of theories. This beast 
seems to mark people with the number 666. And one of the common ways that people have used to interpret the number 666 is a practice called gematria, which is a practice of assigning uh, numerical values to letters. Okay? Uh, so, you know, particular letters have particular numerical values, and then a word has a total number. So you can find out which words or which names add up to 666 and therefore find the identity. The problem, of course, is nobody can agree on how to use gematria. Nobody agrees what numerical system to use. Should we go up in ones or sixes or tens or hundreds? Uh, nobody, use, nobody agrees what language we should be applying gematria to. Should we be doing it in English? Should we be doing it in Latin or Greek? Uh, how do we actually use this? And basically, it gets to the point where you can cynically decide who you want the 666 to be and then work backwards and find some way of using gematria to get there. And so you've had candidates for the 666 number uh, people like Henry Kissinger, uh, Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, Sarah Palin, of course, Barack Obama, they've all been proposed as suggestions of 666 because in some way you can add up if you get some numerical system going and find that their names really do add up to 666. Uh, I did my own little calculation. I used English gematria going up in multiples of six, and I came up with this name. I don't know whether that name means anything to you, Ken Brinsdow. Uh, I've never heard of him, but apparently he is, he is 666. So if you, if you see him round, uh, he may be the identification of the mysterious number 666. It's a bit of a torturous method, isn't it? These endless calculations of trying to figure out, uh, and people do this with first century figures as well. Nero is a suggestion, uh, the emperor Domitian. Uh, you can you can go down that line, but really it just becomes pretty tedious and pretty arbitrary. A better approach, I think, is to look at how numbers are used in Revelation and what numbers mean elsewhere. And what you find, of course, is that the number seven, as we've talked about, the number seven is the number of totality or perfection or completion or fullness. When it's used of God, it represents his full power and his full authority and his full majesty. So if seven is fullness and completion, the number six is simply everything that falls short of seven. It's imperfection. It's an attempt to be seven and yet the ultimate failure to be seven. Six is everything that is not seven, which is why at the beginning of Revelation 13, you have this beast of the sea that is represented among other numbers by seven. It has these seven heads. And yet by the time you get to the end of the chapter, we're told that in fact, his number is only six. Tries to be seven, claims the seven, tries for divine status, fullness and perfection. But in the end, he is a threefold six. Failure, failure, failure. Six, six, six is everything that is not seven, seven, seven. It is an attempt by humanity to claim the position of God and yet fall woefully far short of it. It's exactly what happened to the emperor and the empire of Rome. And this is reinforced by this little phrase in the same verse, verse 18. Let those who have insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. Now in Greek, the word a is missing. It doesn't have the definite article. There is no a. It just says, for this is the number of man. Or better translation, it is the number of humanity. 
we're not necessarily talking about any one person in particular. This is the number of man. This is the number of humanity. This represents the age-old human attempt to try and gain God-like status and act like we are the highest beings in the universe. And yet in the very act of so doing, we fall miserably short, get so caught up in our pride, never attain to the divine status. The seven belongs to God alone. And so this number 666, it starts to point us beyond just the Roman Empire, doesn't it? Because the, the Roman Empire, the Roman Emperor was the perfect expression of the 666, this attempt to be godlike, this attempt to claim ultimate authority. But it's not just the Roman Empire that did this. It's not just the emperors of Rome that did this. 666 is any beast, any system, any empire, any ideology that sets itself up against God and tries to elevate human beings to the level of God. And you could draw various parallels today as to stories or, or systems or empires that try to do this, that try to elevate human beings and somehow bring down God. Now, let me give you just one suggestion to try and make a, a contemporary application here, and you might want to explore some more in your life groups. I would suggest one worldview today that conforms pretty accurately to this is the worldview of secular humanism. Now, the secular humanist worldview basically suggests that we live in a naturalistic universe. There is nothing beyond what we can see and touch and perceive with our senses. Human beings, therefore, are the highest beings in the universe, the highest form of existence there is, and we are simply left free to do whatever we want and to run the show our way. Now, that's an expression of a modern-day beast of the sea, I would suggest. It exercises huge authority. It's not a political kingdom, but it exercises huge authority over the minds and hearts of people. It really represents well that 666 human attempt to be God. It doesn't deify human beings, but it elevates human beings to divine status simply by claiming there's no one else above us. There is no authority that we need to submit to. Secular humanism, I think, is a good example today of what the beast of the sea might be. And just like the empire of Rome, secular humanism tells us a story, doesn't it? It has its own narrative to make sense of life. It starts with the idea that we've evolved through chance, random, accidental processes. There is no intentionality coming to us from a creator. There is no sense of order, of meaning, of purpose that's shaping our lives in the present. Human beings are alone in the world in the sense that we're at the top of the hill. And we're left then, we're responsible just for trying to order and structure society the best way we can according to the best good of most people. And human life has nothing after it, nothing to look forward to, nothing to fear. Human history is not moving towards any kind of telos, any kind of goal, any kind of end point. Human life will just come and will go. The only purpose your life has is what you give to it in the present. And therefore, make the best sense of life that you can. Give yourself as much meaning as you can because life will be over soon. That's basically the worldview of secular humanism. And, and it's, it's a story of absolute hopelessness in one sense, isn't it? Total nihilism. It leads nowhere. And yet at the same time, it's a very appealing story, just like the Pax Romana, because it allows us to believe that we can take the place of God. It allows us to believe that we can be God-like, that we make the rules, we order society, we are the king of the hill, and we'll do whatever we like. And that's appealing. It's got a hold on many, many people, especially in the West. It becomes the dominant cultural story. So many people's lives are marked by that beast, aren't they? They're marked by that beast whenever they orientate their lives towards egocentric living rather than 
theocentric, God-centered living, whenever we make choices that lead us in that direction, we are receiving again the mark of the beast, not a literal mark on our, on our hand or our forehead, but the mark of allegiance to a worldview that rivals the kingdom of God. Now, if secular humanism is one possible application of the beast of the sea, and I'm not saying it's the only one, you can explore some others, but one possible application, what would the corresponding beast of the earth be? Uh, if secular humanism is, a, is this compelling narrative of life, what's the beast of the earth? Really here, you would be thinking of particular local expressions of secular humanism in our context, practical, tangible things that reinforce that worldview, that keep that story alive, that lead people to worship the beast, give their allegiance to secular humanism, practical ways in which secular humanism is manifested in our society. So, there's a variety of things you could think of there. You could think of literature. Think of Richard Dawkins and his book, The God Delusion, some of the other new atheist writers. A total broadside in anyone that believes in any kind of God or deity or higher power. He's basically the PR agent of secular humanism. He's basically promoting and reinforcing that worldview. That's what the beast of the earth does. Uh, you could think of universities and education that usually operate within a secular humanist framework, especially in disciplines like biology, psychology, philosophy, but even more broadly through simply training students within the secular humanist framework. Think of the media. Think of ways in which the mainstream media tends to marginalize the Christian voice or at worst openly mock the Christian voice. This is an example of secular, secular humanism being reinforced. We could even think of laws and politics, couldn't we? The recent marriage amendment bill is a good example. That's not coming out of nowhere. That's coming out of a secular humanist worldview. Think about it. If there is no creator that gives life and shape and definition to human relationships, then human beings are just left to construct their own definitions of what human relationship and sexuality looks like and enshrine those in law and legislation. It's an expression of secular humanism. It reinforces secular humanism. It represents, I think, part of a beast-of-the-earth type system. Now, the real question in view of all this is, how are we as Christians called to respond? And the key verse here is verse 10 in Revelation chapter 13. John says at the end of that verse, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say this calls for social revolution on the part of God's people. He doesn't say this calls for political action on the part of God's people. He doesn't say this calls for us to overthrow the structures and institutions of society and take back a Christian empire. See, John nowhere encourages his churches to go out and Christianize the Roman Empire. He simply doesn't do it. John does not tell his readers, his hearers, to go out and try to influence the structures and, and, and institutions and politics of Rome in order to bring about social change. He doesn't tell them to go and lobby their Roman officials, to go and stand before their Roman proconsuls, to try and get this institution of emperor worship abolished. That's just not where his focus is. What he's interested in doing is forming Christians and communities of Christians that look different to the empire of Rome forming contrast communities that model a different story, that model a different way of being human, a different God, a different allegiance, living out of an entirely different narrative, knowing that that is what will attract the attention of other people because it looks so different. 
It is by embodying the gospel and the kingdom within our lives and within our communities that we respond effectively to the beasts of the sea. And it seems to me today that many Christians want to do almost the opposite to this, that we want to try and, and get out our swords and cut the head off the beast of secular humanism. We want to try and influence the structures, the institutions, the politics of our society in order to win the war. In particular, Christians seem particularly fascinated with trying to influence politics and legislation. We seem to live with an assumption that if we can just create Christian-based laws, if we can protect those laws and introduce those laws that reflect Judeo-Christian values, we will have contributed towards a more Christian New Zealand, and we will be stemming the tide of secular humanism. And I understand where that's coming from, and it's well-intentioned, but I would just humbly ask you to consider, is that really our mandate? Is that really our biblical calling to try and bring about a society with Christian-based laws, to try and influence society through politics, structures, and cultural institutions? It seems to me that even if we succeeded in doing that, and we had a whole lot of laws that reflect Christian morality, what have we achieved? Behavior modification. We've enforced a certain picture of Christian morality. We've got a whole lot of people now who don't know Jesus, but they're forced to conform to Christian values in the way they do certain things and live in certain ways, and they're probably more angry at the church and angry at God and more antagonistic of the gospel than they were when we started. This does not seem to me to be compatible with the kingdom of heaven. Jesus didn't come to overthrow the empire of Rome or Christianize the empire of Rome. He came to establish the kingdom of God, and that is a fundamentally different thing. The kingdom of God emerges from within the empire. It bubbles up from within the belly of the beast. It doesn't come to simply eliminate and overthrow the structures of society. I think sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, we're a bit guilty of trying to use Rome's version of power, the power of coercion, the power of force, legislative force perhaps, to try and get our agenda out there. And Revelation calls us to something different, doesn't it? It calls us to the way of lamb power. It calls us to patience and faithfulness. It calls us to endurance. It calls us to practice something different. I think the best way that Christians can respond to the marriage amendment bill is by modeling healthy marriages, by modeling relationships that look categorically different, by practicing and expressing within our community of faith the biblical vision of relationship and sexuality, knowing that we shine a light into the darkness, and that is how the darkness is overcome. Not by trying to take the reins of society, and force social change. If you want to combat and resist secular humanism, the shallowness, the selfishness of it, live a life of depth and offer selflessness to others so that people see something they can't find elsewhere. The self-giving, self-emptying love of the crucified Jesus. That's what we have to offer the world. And as we do that, as we live out the way of lamb power, Our culture, our society may or may not change, and that's okay. Because notice in Revelation 13 that by the end of the chapter, these beasts are still very much alive. John doesn't say, be patient and be faithful and you'll overcome the beasts. In fact, what he says is pretty much the opposite. You'll be martyred. If anyone's to go into captivity, into captivity they go. John never promises us that we'll bring about social change or cultural change. 
What he promises us is that by living faithfully, we are embodying the kingdom of God and shining light into darkness. What he promises us is that by the end of Revelation, Jesus is going to come and defeat the beast. It's not your job. That's Jesus' job. That's why he shows up in Revelation at the end of the story to deal with these forces and ideologies of evil. But John's agenda for us is not to take out our swords and try and chop the head off the beast, but to practice faithfulness and patient endurance. And that doesn't mean, I know the counter-argument is, well, this is just passivity and we're going to sit idly and let our world go to hell in a handcart. That's not what John's advocating either. Patience and faithfulness and lamb power is active. It is actively extending faith and hope and love into the world because that is what the kingdom of God is about. It is changing the world in a sense one person at a time, not top down, not through structures and institutions, but through offering and embodying the gospel within our community and to our communities, just like Becky and Tana are within their community of Beachhaven. That's the way of lamb power. That's what looks different. That's what attracts the attention of the world, sometimes positively, sometimes negatively, but that's what shines in the darkness. So friends, let's not be intimidated by these beasts. Sometimes we get so frightened of them. Let's not be shaken by these beasts of the sea and the earth. We know their power comes from one who was already defeated, Satan. They're animated by a defeated enemy and they're on borrowed time. We don't need to fear them. But let's respond to them in a biblical way, not through exercising Rome power, trying to take the reins of our culture and force change to come about, but through the way of patient endurance and faithfulness participating with God in bringing about the kingdom of heaven and his new creation right here in the midst of the empires and shining the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ right here in the midst of the beasts that we encounter in our world. That's how the kingdom comes and that's how the gospel is embodied. Can we pray? Jesus, we pray for courage to encounter the the empires of the world that we live in with your gospel. We pray that you would give us boldness in our world to be people of the kingdom, people who demonstrate lamb power to those around us, people who live lives of patient endurance and faithfulness. We thank you that the battle is yours to win and not ours. We thank you that this world will one day be the kingdom of our God and of our Messiah. We thank you that in the midst of that, you simply call us to patience and faithfulness. So Jesus, for each of us, show us what that looks like. Show us how we can extend faith and hope and love and how we can demonstrate the way of Jesus within the beasts of the world that we live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.